you should already have your Bible out, open to Matthew chapter 9. Last week, uh, Marshall covered chapter 8, and in both chapter 8 and 9, we see the king and the release of his power. All of a sudden, Jesus starts performing all of these incredible miracles, hot signs, wonders, healings are taking place, demons are being cast out of individuals, and he's doing all these things. He ministered grace to the outcast. He gave peace to the troubled. And now here in chapter 9, he continues to provide healings and deliverance to the oppressed. Some have made this out to be the centerpiece of his ministry, that Jesus went about healing. Jesus went about, you know, doing signs and wonders. I want to share with you today, as I think about where we are in our nation, when I think about what we're all facing with with COVID-19, I want to say that it's easy for us to look to Jesus for immediate temporal needs to be met. And we look to him for that. We, We want the sign. We want the wonder. We want the healing. We want the miracle. And many today, they're holding for that. That's the only thing that gets them through is another miracle or a next healing or whatever it might be. And and I just want to say to you that that has never, ever been the centerpiece of the ministry of Jesus Christ. Okay? The reason Jesus came was not to just heal people of sickness and disease. Jesus came as Messiah. He came to pardon sinners, to forgive them, and give them life eternal. It's about salvation. It's not about another miracle, another sign, another wonder. It's about a miracle of salvation, being forgiven of your sins. That is why Jesus came. And yet sometimes we grasp the the lesser things. The reason he performed the miracles, the reason he healed people was to point them to the fact that he's God. Only God could do these things. He was trying to bring attention to the Messiahship that he brought to this earth. It wasn't for the miracle of healing itself. It was for the greater work that he would go to the cross. In fact, our first story here in chapter 9 explains that clearly. I want you to see it with me. Uh, Before we turn there, though, I want to let you know that John, in John's parallel gospel of this story and of these stories, Jesus actually said something that John picked up on and put it in his his writing. Jesus actually said, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. He was actually uh, trying to correct them. The people, the the crowds that were gathering, they were not coming to him for who he was. They were coming to him for what he would do. They only wanted the temporal fix. I've got a cousin who's sick. I need you to heal him. Not giving thought to the fact that that cousin is going to die and go to hell unless he's forgiven his sins through Christ. And I think that in this time that we're in right now, it's easy for us to grasp Jesus for the temporal need. And we forget that the greatest work of Christ was 
delivering me, delivering you from sin. What a time to remember that. Whenever there's a a heightened awareness of of concern or a threat uh, and where fear wants to come in and grip us, that is the perfect time for us to give thanks to God for salvation. Because your salvation trumps all sickness and disease. And sometimes the Lord heals and sometimes the Lord doesn't heal. But when you ask for forgiveness every single time, he forgives. It is his greatest work. The easy work is to heal. The difficult work was to go to the cross to provide reconciliation between God and man. And that's what our Savior did. So let's pick up at verse 1. You're going to see the King, Jesus. That's really what Matthew is pushing this entire book that he wrote. He is giving us a perspective of Jesus as the King. And he's saying that you and I, who are his citizens, we belong to the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven. And so here he gives this story that he starts this chapter with. It's a beautiful story. And getting into a boat, he crossed over and came to his own city. Now, his own city would have been Capernaum. That is where uh, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, and Matthew were from. They all lived in that city. They all went down to the water's edge at the Sea of Galilee. They had their boats. They would go out fishing. That was their vocation. They lived in the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus started his ministry, the Sermon on the Mount, just up the little hill there, the mountain, at Capernaum. And then he went off last chapter. He travels across the lake to a couple different locations and performs miracles and wonders. The Bible even says he healed all that he, that he ministered to. He healed all of them. And then he makes his way back to Capernaum, which is his home city. That's where we're at now. And it says, And behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Now, we don't know exactly why this man was paralyzed. The scholars tend to believe that it was not from birth, that an event occurred in his life. In fact, ancient history, Hebrew history, suggests that this guy was out living pretty immorally. And something happened to him that caused paralysis. He could have fallen. Maybe he was inebriated and he fell and he was paralyzed. We don't really know. But that's the backstory on this. If you go to the Gospel of Luke, which we're not going to do, you get a lot more detail in that Gospel. And so if I can just share this with you, that uh, in Luke's Gospel, it says that Jesus was sitting in one of the homes in Capernaum. He was teaching, and all of a sudden, these four friends lowered through the roof this paralytic down in front of Jesus. You all know which story I'm talking about. It's coming to you. That's the story right here that's recorded in Matthew. And it says that when Jesus saw him, and he saw his friends, what they were willing to do for him, He looked to the man, the paralytic, and he said, "Uh, your sins are forgiven. Be of good cheer. 
And I would imagine at that moment, the four friends are going, um, dude, we didn't lower him down through a roof just to hear a spiritual statement about sins being forgiven. We want him to be healed. Well, the scribes that were present began to question Jesus. And it's right here in our text. We're going to see it in just a, a second. But I, I, I want to go back and just stop for a second and say, if you think about this, Jesus said that I'm going to forgive your sins. And then these guys questioned Jesus. Well, who does he think he is that he can forgive sins? Jesus reads their mind. Know this about Jesus. While he was in his body form, he was fully man. That meant he could weep, he could have emotional experience. And at the end of the chapter, he actually does. But it also means that he was still fully God. So he still had foreknowledge. He still had the ability to, God would allow him to use that. So he read their minds. He knew that they were questioning, who does he think he is that he can forgive somebody's sins? Only God can do that. And so Jesus spoke and said, some of you are questioning whether I can actually forgive sins. So which is easier, to forgive sins or to heal his body? Well, the answer is pretty simple. To heal a body is a lot easier than forgiving sins. And so then Jesus spoke to the man and said, I want you to rise up and I want you to walk. And this paralytic, who knows how many years he'd been in this state, rises up and walks. And everybody goes crazy. His four friends are leaping and shouting and now they want to go tell the world that their friend is healed. He can now walk. But I'm going to say to you, I suggest that that man who's now walking is thanking God for that, but the greatest work that he is thanking God for is the fact that what put him on that pallet to begin with was unrighteous living, and he had many sins in his life that he probably regretted, and the Lord just forgave him his sins. And he walked away whole spiritually. See, it's one thing to walk physically for the first time in a long time. It's another thing to come alive and walk spiritually. There's the greater work. See, Jesus was never about just healing people, just doing things that only last in this lifetime. Now, how does that relate to us? Well, we live in a time right now where there's a lot of challenges, a lot of questions, a lot of uncertainty, and we're wanting answers, and we're trying to make it through life right now. And life can be difficult for each of us in a very unique, different way. Some of you are questioning relationships and the fact that you can't have any right now. You can't get with people. You're, you're alone. You feel isolated. That's an issue. And we're looking to Jesus and saying, Lord, come near me, come near me. But while you're doing that, while you're asking him for a healing, while you're asking him to come into your presence and to be there with you, listen, don't stop thanking him for the greater work that will outlive COVID, that will outlive the problem that you're facing. The greatest work is that he has forgiven you of your sins if you're a believer. You see, what we're going to find throughout this chapter and what we saw in last chapter is Jesus struggled as he was healing and delivering and, and casting out demons. 
he struggled with the fact that the people had unbelief. Well, wait a minute. You, they didn't have unbelief. They brought their friend to be healed. They believed he would heal. But they didn't have belief that he was God. And that's why when he went to Jerusalem, the crowd turned against him. They only wanted him for what he could give them. They didn't want him as a savior. And isn't that just like us as human beings? We're so self-focused, so self-centered. Give me, give me, give me. If you can give me, oh, you're, you can, yeah, I want some. I need it. Oh, that's free? Oh, I love free things. Please. When do we give? When do we appreciate what Jesus, the greatest work, when do we appreciate that he forgave us of our sins and now live a life of giving to others the same gospel that saved us and forgave us? In Romans 4, 7 through 8, the Apostle Paul, quoting David, said, Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. What is he saying? He's saying blessed is the person who knows they've been forgiven. That's a blessing. I don't care what season of life you're in. I don't care what trial you're facing, whether it's financial, relational, uh, in the business, whatever it might be. Listen, don't ever stop giving thanks. You are blessed to know that your sins have been forgiven. Past, present, and future sin. Amen? That's got to be important to us today, folks. That's got to that's hold weight. Verse 3, And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, This man is blaspheming. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your, in your hearts? For which is easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. There it is. I have been given authority by the Father in heaven. They knew the Father. They just didn't recognize the Son. And he's saying, the Son is saying, no, the Father in heaven, the one that you know, the one, the Father of Abraham, that Father, he's given me the authority to forgive sins. When I said to that man, your sins are forgiven, I said it because I can do it. I'm God, is what he's saying. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority to, uh, to, on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose, and he went home. And when the crowd saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. Now, I love that. There's something in that that all of us need to hear. We are called Christians. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if you have received uh, his forgiveness for your sins by believing in him as, son, as the Son of God who died for you on the cross, listen, you are a Christian, but you're more than just being a Christian. You are a minister. You're a minister. You are to minister others what God has so graciously and lovingly given you. He has graciously given you forgiveness. You go and forgive others who have, who have hurt you, who have harmed you. He has given you an abundance of love and a sense of belonging to his family. Now you go with a desire 
to bring others by the gospel into that loving family. You see, we have a message to share. Now, here's what's interesting. It says here, when the crowd saw it, when they saw what Jesus had done, they were afraid and they glorified God the Father who had given such authority to men. Here's, here's the deal. What Jesus did didn't point back to him. It pointed to the Father. Isn't it easy for us as we minister and people say, oh, you're wonderful, oh, Pastor, oh, oh, Pastor Greg. No. I, I am Greg, and I am a sinner like everybody in this room. And except for the grace of God, I would be like the worst murderer out there. God has done a work in me. Don't owe Greg, it's oh Father. Thank you for saving that man and then using him just like you're using me, just like you're using the elders of our church, the Sunday school teachers of our children. You're using the, the sound and the, the lighting folks. You're using everybody in our, God wants to use all of us as you go out every day ministering. And we never want people to point back to us. Always leave them with, no, it's the Lord that allows me to do this. I remember pulling over one time and helping a young lady who, uh, she was probably about 20 years old, and her, her, she had a flat tire. And so I pulled over into the, uh, the turn lane, which she was in, on 58th Avenue. And, um, and then I climbed out and said, hey, can I help you? And so I opened her trunk, got her tire, and I changed her tire for her. Oh, oh, you're the pastor at the church. Oh, oh, thank you, thank you. You're, I can't believe the pastor would stop and help me. I said, oh, wait, wait a second. Listen, I would never help you. God had to do a work in my heart for me to love you the way he loves you. If it were left to me, I'd drive right by you. It's the truth. Apart from God, we're sinners. Paul said, I'm the worst of all, I'm the most wretched of all sinners. So we thank God and we point people to God. Amen? We have to do that. So, verse 8. I'm sorry, verse 9. Let's go ahead and move to verse 9. Let's move out of that particular portion of chapter 9. As Jesus passed on from there, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth. Matthew, of course, is the author of this particular gospel that we're studying. But Matthew had another name. His name was Levi, which makes him a Levite. Levites were of the priestly tribe, of the 12 tribes of Israel. It was the priestly tribe, those who were trained to serve in the, in the temple. And, and, but instead of worshiping at the temple as Levi, Levi was worshiping the almighty dollar. He was a tax collector working for the Romans, collecting taxes for Rome, which made the Jews hate him. And then he would take a little more off the top. He'd skim off the top for himself. Tax collectors were some of the most ruthless, worthless people on the face of the earth at that time. Their friends were the prostitutes. Their friends were the, the, the down and outers. That's who they hung out with because normal people wouldn't hang out with them. They were a mess. 
And Jesus comes by and he said to Matthew, follow me. And Matthew rose and followed him. Jesus was saying, hey, Matthew, you're so far from what God created you to be and do. I want you to follow me. You're worth it to me. Just as these young men back here, uh, just like us, they've made mistakes in life. They've sinned like we have. And aren't you glad, church, that God said, you're still worth it to me? I don't throw anybody on the scrap heap. You matter to me. You matter to me. And he took Matthew, and it says in verse 10, Matthew was so excited about it, he decided to take Jesus home, to his home. And as they reclined at the table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. So you've got a tax collector who the Savior of the world pays attention to and says, you're worth it. And this guy's so moved by the fact that this Savior believes in him that he says, please, let's go to my house. I've got a ton of lost friends who need to meet you. Reminds me of Kathy Haggerty. Kathy is a member of our fellowship, and she recently lost uh, her mother, and um, she's really struggling through that. That's a great loss. But I remember when Kathy got saved, when Kathy walked forward and received Jesus Christ as her Savior. And then the next couple weeks, I saw Kathy with somebody else that came to church with her. And a few weeks after that, I saw that person walking forward to receive Christ and Kathy walking alongside them with the biggest grin on her face. And over time, I saw an entire pew filled with Kathy's friends who came to the Lord. Before Kathy got saved, Kathy was hanging out in bars. She'll tell you that. She doesn't hold back. She was lost. These were her bar friends. And one by one, as they would call her, Kathy, what's going on? You're not hanging out tonight? What's going on? You, you, you stopped hanging out with us. I know. I want you to hang out with me. I want you to come to church with me. And these bar friends were getting saved. See, that's, that's what it is all about. It's not about healing. It's not about deliverance of demons. I'm telling you, the greatest work of Christ is to forgive someone of their sins. And the greatest ministry of a Christian is to share the gospel and point people to a forgiving God. So he goes there in verse 11, and when the Pharisees saw this, here they see Jesus who's sitting at a table with tax collectors and sinners, okay, prostitutes, thieves, whoever. And the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, Jesus said back to them, those who are well have no need of a physician. He was speaking of the Pharisee who thought he had it all together righteously speaking but those who are sick they're the ones that need the physician and then he said this to the pharisees and this was a phrase back in that day in that period of time that was a correction it was a it was a rebuke he said go and learn what this means in other words 
you should already know this. You should already know that you're lost and you're in sin and you need a Savior. You should already know from the Old Testament that prophesied of the Messiah coming that He would save you from your sin. You should already know this, but you don't know it, so go and learn it. And then He said this, For I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. (laughs) I didn't come to the world to help righteous people feel good about themselves. I came to help the person who knows I'm lost and I'm desperate for help. There are none righteous, but the Lord says I'm coming after those who recognize their own spiritual need. So he came to the publicans. He came to the sinners. He came to the street people. He came to the common folk. Jesus said, I don't want sacrifice. I want mercy. Compassion and concern was given to everyone. That's our Jesus. What a great God. Amen? And Matthew said to his friends, come on over to my house and meet the one who has shown me grace and mercy. He didn't judge me. In fact, he's forgiven me. We need more. Listen, folks, we need more Matthew parties in our church where we get saved and we bring people who that we work with, that we know in the community, in the neighborhood, we bring them to our house and we love them the way Jesus loves them. And we point them to Jesus. A few more Matthew parties would do our church well. Amen? I want you to hear about the one who has changed my life. That's all you got to say. I just want to tell you about the one who's changed my life. Because they, they know you, they, they're going to listen. Now, they might reject Jesus, but because you're their friend, they're going to listen to you. And some will receive Christ. Verse 14, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? This was our reading today. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? In other words, while the bride, or the bride and the groom are there, you celebrate. You don't mourn. It's when they leave, that's when you mourn. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from, from them, and then they will fast. In other words, I'm the, I'm the groom. Jesus is saying, I'm Christ. You are the church. You're going to be the church, the bride. I'm the groom. While I'm with you, celebrate. When I leave you, mourn. Mourn. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Ever tried to put new denim, back when you were a kid, you ever, my mom did this one time, I'll never forget mom, you probably don't even remember it, but she put, uh, I had a hole in my, in my jeans, and she put a patch on those jeans, but the jeans were worn, they were worn out. The patch wasn't, it was a brand new patch. She put that thing on the jeans, stitched it in, and uh, guess what happened after she watched, watched it? All the jeans around it pulled up to it. So now I got this wrinkly-looking thing on my pant leg. You know what I'm talking about. You can't put, and, and the same is true for wineskins. And Jesus speaks to that. Okay? You, he says, it, neither is, is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skin bur- bursts, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But new wine is put into fresh wineskins so that both are preserved. Here's the point. I'm going to give you the, the, the surface, the, on the surface what he's saying, and then what's beneath it, okay? First of all, on the surface, 
uh, they used to use uh, animal skins to hold the wine. Why? Because they could stretch. They had elasticity. And so they'd put new wine in an animal skin, and over time it would ferment, and it would build up pressure, and the bag, the wine skin, would expand with it. But then if you took the wine out of that old wine skin that's already stretched out, now it doesn't have any elasticity left in it, and you put more new wine in, and that starts to ferment and, and the pressure builds, now you're going to rip the wine skin. That's on the surface. Below it, Jesus is saying, you guys, you Pharisees, are making it all about the ceremonial laws. That if you can follow the ceremonial laws, everything... Listen, a ceremonial law cannot possibly hold the new covenant that we have in Christ. Jesus is like, no, no, the new covenant is greater. Don't put that, don't try to make this new covenant fit into a bunch of do's and don'ts. You just have to know that God is doing a new work in you. You say, well, what's the new work? Well, the new work's pretty simple. It's where God sent Christ to go to the cross in your behalf. That's the new work. See, the old work is that you would follow the law of God in the Old Testament, the ceremonial laws, the moral laws, the sacrificial laws. You follow the dietary laws. You follow all the laws. And of course, never was the Old Testament law supposed to deliver you or appease your sins. It couldn't do that. All it could do was point you to something greater. You had to have something more than the law because nobody could live perfectly to the law. And God said, if you can't live perfectly to the law, then forget it. So now in the New Testament, Christ comes and Christ lives perfectly to the law. Then that one who's perfect and innocent goes to the cross and he dies on the cross for all of us who could never live to the law. Only the innocent can pardon the guilty. God put himself Debt payment 
If Jesus' death on the cross was not sufficient to cover the sin debt of mankind, God would have left him in the grave. That's why the resurrection is the greatest event in history, not the cross. The cross reconciles us, but the, the resurrection is where we find the power to live in this life. Because that same power that raised Christ from the dead now lives in you if you're saved. Is that awesome? I thank God for that. So, while he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. So he exhibited great faith. And Jesus rose and followed him, with his disciples. And in Luke chapter 8, by the way, we see the same miracle but with a lot more detail. He tells us the man's name was Jairus. He was a ruler of the synagogue. Before the year 586 B.C., virtually all Jews lived within 100 miles of a temple because they had to go to temple, so they never spread out beyond 100 miles. And then after, the, after 586 B.C., when you had the, uh, um, that's when you had the exile for 70 years, they come back from that. Now they start, while they were in exile and even after, they start building these temples wherever there are 10 Jewish men. You could not have a temple in a town unless there were 10 Jewish men. Those 10 men would serve as the elders of that town, and they, of, that, of that synagogue. And that's exactly what, and, and, and among the ten elders that served in every synagogue, one of the elders became the ruling elder, only one. And that's who Jesus is talking with, that in that particular temple, Jairus is the ruling elder of that particular temple, that synagogue. So interestingly, it tells us that Jairus, in, in Luke, it tells us that Jairus uh, had a daughter who was 12 years old, and now she is about to die. She probably brought a lot of laughter and joy into that home for 12 years, and now she's about to die because of sickness. And when Jairus came face to face with, uh, with the fact that his daughter's going to die, he knew there's only one thing I can do. I got to go find this man who's performing these miracles. And he had faith to believe that the guy could heal him, and that was Jesus. And so now he's all excited that Jesus is going to go with him to his house to touch his daughter who's about to die. But as Jesus is making his way to the house through a crowd of people, a woman reaches out and touches the hem of the garment of Jesus. And behold, verse 20, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for 12 years. So she's hemorrhaged for 12 years. 
She came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. Stop there for a second. The fact that this woman had been hemorrhaging for 12 years meant that she was unclean in that day. She would not have been allowed to go to synagogue. She would not have been allowed to hang out with a lot of folks. They, in fact, they would, not hold, they would not be around her because she's unclean. So she reaches out in a last-ditch effort. She's gone to physicians. Luke tells us she had gone to many physicians and nobody could do anything for her. She reaches out and she touches the hem of his garment. And what's interesting, uh, what's interesting about that is that was a common thing, that if you could touch the hem of the garment of the priest in the Jewish faith, that somehow that was something very special and unique. It was nothing more than a superstition. So get this. This woman is now acting out of a superstition, thinking if I can touch his garment, just like if I could touch the priest, that I'll be healed. Jesus looks past the superstition. He looks past the weakness in the woman's theology because he saw the desperate need in her heart. And immediately Luke records, as she touched the hem of his garment, he said, who touched me? Because I just felt power leave me. The flow of power, some has left me. She did it by her faith. And Jesus said, lady, your faith has made you whole. Uh, wow, there's just so much there. You could preach a whole sermon on that. But, but listen, here's the point. So she reaches out in desperation to Jesus, and Jesus touches her. All the while, Jairus is standing there going, okay, what's this lady doing? We're supposed to be going to my house. My daughter's dying. He's probably a little impatient right now. But Jesus stopped to help the woman, and now they make their way. They get to the house. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, by the way, in that day when somebody was dying, you would hire these professional mourners. They would come with instruments. They would come and they would wail. They would just stand outside, oh, and in the house, oh. They don't even know the person. But you'd want the professional wailers to be there. That was the thing you did. And so they're all doing their thing. Jesus walks up and says, oh, good grief. Please, out. Get out of the house. They leave. And he said, go away, for the girl is not dead. They thought she had died. She's just sleeping. She was dead. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her by the hand, and the girl rose. And the report of, his, of this went throughout all that district. So Jesus, again, saying to the people, I am God. Stop focusing solely on what I do. Know who I am. Recognize me as the Savior, Messiah. Come to me if you're thirsty and I'll give you a drink. And you'll never thirst again. He wasn't talking about temporal drink of water. He's talking about being filled with the Spirit of God for all eternity. Whenever Jesus wants to work in your situation, believe me, there's going to always be mockers, just like these folks who had gathered. They laughed at Jesus when he went into the house to try to pray and raise a dead girl, and he did it. 
And when you go and minister, people will mock you. But see, you don't possess the power God does. You're simply his representative. Amen? And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. Always wondered, how did the blind men follow him? My mind just thinks that way. I don't know. It's weird. But look what they said. Have mercy on us, son of David. Guess what that means? They recognized him as Messiah. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him. Romans 1 makes it clear that both, the, both by instinct and observation, every man knows that there's a God. But what do men do? They suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They don't want to admit that there's a God, that there's a creator. Because if there's a creator, they are accountable to him. But these two guys are like, no, we know who you are. We want to be accountable. We, we want to be healed. And Jesus said to them, do you believe that I am able to do this? In other words, do you see me for who I am? That I'm God? And they said, yes, Lord, Lord. The people did not call him Lord. And then he touched their eyes, saying, according to your faith, it has been done to you. And their eyes were opened, and Jesus sternly warned them, see that no one knows about it. The reason he kept saying that is because it wasn't his time to be arrested. And these healings were going to stir up the religious leaders. He also, I believe, was protecting the people from the onslaught of persecution they would receive when they would give the answer, well, who did this to you? Jesus. Messiah. <laughs> that wouldn't fly well. That would not go over well. And so, verse 31, but they went away and spread his fame throughout all that district. They didn't care, man. We're just so excited what he's done for us. We're going to tell people about it. I wish we were more like that, huh? That we just remember how much he's forgiven us of. The greatest miracle in the world is not having your physical body healed, but to know that spiritually you've been touched for all eternity. Praise God. Go out and tell somebody about it. Verse 32, as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, he cast out demons by the prince of demons, by Satan. See, if you can't, if you if, if you don't want the truth, you want to try to somehow keep the truth suppressed, then you make lies. You turn somebody into a demon. You demonize them. Uh, we see that in the political arena, don't we? Okay, well, it happened back then too. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. People ask, why aren't people being healed today like back then? Well, God still heals today, but it's not the same. It just isn't. At this point, Jesus was giving the Jews the opportunity to acknowledge him as their Messiah. Had they received him, they could have moved right into the kingdom, but they rejected him when they nailed him to the cross. Consequently, although we do see miracles today, they're not the same as the ones he performed physically when he walked on the earth. The miracles we read about in the Gospels are nothing more than sneak previews of coming attractions when he returns, okay? And he will rule and reign. And so what you have to understand is that there were times where Jesus would ask them, do you believe? And then he would heal them. 
Then there were times where he healed somebody because somebody else believed for them. Jairus, is, uh, he believed for his daughter, and Jesus healed for that reason. Then there were other times nobody believed, and Jesus healed. When he went to heal Lazarus, Mary and Martha, the, he was already gone. They were upset. Jesus just healed them. And so when a faith healer comes up to you or somebody who, who walks in this doctrine of the word of faith and they say, well, the reason you didn't get healed is because you didn't have enough faith to believe, you need to say to them, well, according to the scriptures, why don't you use your faith to heal me? Because Jesus healed in a lot of different ways. Well, that blows their whole doctrine out of the water. The fact is Jesus doesn't always heal. Now, there were times, it says here, that he healed everybody he saw in some places. Other places in the Scripture, it says he was healing them, and then he decided to walk away while still others needed to be healed. And the disciples even questioned, Lord, there's more people. No, that's not what the Father wants me to do. We're going over here. Why? Because it was never about healing first. It's about salvation first. It's about doing the will of the Father, being Messiah. Friends, you hold on to Jesus not because he heals you. You hold on to Jesus because he's God. And God can choose to heal and God might not heal, but God's still God. Amen? Let me tell you what I'm not going to do. I'm never going to put my faith in faith. I'm never going to put my faith in healing. I'm going to put my faith in the God who can heal. So whether he heals or not, it doesn't mess up my theology because Jesus didn't come for me to put my faith in healing. He came to, for me to put my faith in God, who can heal. When he chooses to do it, he does it. And many times he doesn't. But I still have God. And then the Bible says, many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. So even if you don't get healed, when you die, you are healed for all eternity. Amen? You can't lose with God. It takes greater faith to believe when the healing doesn't occur than one of these people who walks around only believing because he healed. Because God was the genie in the bottle who gave me what I needed with three wishes. That's not God. That's a superstition. We need to walk with God, grow in him, Verse 36, and when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his field. I think this is a powerful, powerful experience here that we've been studying. And I think that God has done so many things for us in this chapter, teaching us about the power that Christ has for us through the Holy Spirit to walk in salvation and to have confidence in our salvation. I pray that you have that confidence. I pray that you're able to walk in that confidence because I'll tell you what, there are many people who don't understand who God is. You do. We should live a life totally different than them. Amen? And remember this, whatever you do, don't bring the attention back to yourself as you share Christ with others. Always point them to God, right? Amen? It's interesting. Um, 
there was a man who lived in Taiwan, true story, who was really in love with a woman in North America. So he wrote in the period of one year, he wrote over 700 love letters to her. It's a lot of love letters. In 60 of the seven, 62 rather, of the 700 love letters, he actually proposed to her. It worked. Uh, the woman got married, but not to the man. She married the mailman <laughs> who delivered 700 letters to her. <laughs> Always remember, you are the messenger, you're, you're the messenger, you're not the message. Don't steal the message. Share it and then tell them where it came from. Make sure they get it right. Amen? Father, thank you today for your goodness and your love. Thank you for the way that you care for us, the way that you have provided for us in this season of, of uh, this outbreak in the season of isolation, a, a season where everything is anything but normal. And yet, Lord, uh, you call us to remember our great salvation and to be thankful. And so today we walk away with that, that even in this period of time, we can still have great thanksgiving over our salvation and we can share that salvation with others look what the lord has done for me pointing people to you father so lord just as jesus said the fields are white and ready for harvest ask the lord of the harvest to send forth laborers lord we say to you send us in jesus name and all god's people said amen, amen.